We're turning uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. We are looking at Ephesians chapter 3 this evening, but we have a few verses to deal with in the end of chapter 2 that we ran out of time last week. And you're saying, well, you shouldn't. You have enough time given to you every week, but there we go. And it may happen again tonight, but we'll just see how far we get. Ephesians chapter 2, and we got down, if my memory serves me right, to verse 19. So we're going to read from verse 20, and then right through into the chapter 3, and through to verse 13. And that's going to be the section of Ephesians that we're going to concentrate on this evening. So we read verse 19 just to get the flow of the sentence. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We saw that we are now part of the family of God, didn't we? We are now part of the city of God. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. There are the three figures, illustrations that Paul gives to us of the church of Jesus Christ. A new city, a new family, and now a new temple in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. For this cause, following on, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore, in few words. And you can read about that as we did in chapter 1 and verses 9 to 13. He's already talked about this mystery, but in this passage he's going into it in more detail. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister or a servant according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Whereof I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. 
you look at verses 20 to 22 of chapter 2, we began last week to look at the fact that, yes, the church of Jesus Christ is a new city, the church of Jesus Christ is a new family, but it is also the new temple of God. At the very end of our study, we alluded to the fact that in 1 Peter, we read that Peter says that the church of Jesus Christ is a new building. It is a building made up of lively stones. That means it's not a building of bricks and mortar, but it's a building made up of individual people, human beings, lively or living stones. Peter goes on to say that those living stones are built upon a foundation stone who is the living stone of all stones, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember we ended with that illustration? And we talked about when Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah, that there was something peculiar about it. There was something special because each stone within that temple building went up without the sound, the noise of a hammer or a workman. Why? Because each stone was carried up to that building already made, already fit to be put into that temple and to be part of the building of God. The workman would make that stone in his workshop or at home and he would bring it all ready fit to be put and planted upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those stones in Solomon's temple were being cemented together one by one. And Peter is saying, can you see the analogy? That the Holy Ghost of God comes. And he begins to work through conviction in the heart and the life of a man or a woman. And he's starting to chip away their moorings to planet earth. He starts to chip away from the nature of sin that is the quarry that they are found in and grounded and buried in. And bit by bit, the Holy Ghost is bringing that person out of the slave market of sin. And putting them into the redemption ground by the blood of Christ. And they are not fitted into the temple of God's church until they are fit. That's why you ought not to be a member of a church unless you're saved. Each stone was ready before it was fitted in. And you will notice that today no one can hear the gospel effectually. No one can believe unless God himself through the Holy Ghost of God, is working with a man, talking to the man. And he alone can lift that man out of the dire depths of sin and attach that man into the church of Jesus Christ. It cannot be done with the hands of men. If we could realize this in our evangelism, in the preaching of the gospel, in the operation at large of the church of Jesus Christ, that it cannot be done by our hands. It cannot be done by our effort. The word of God says through the prophet, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. We need more than ever for God to do our work. But isn't this beautiful? 
This is God's new thing. Paul calls it God's new poem, God's new masterpiece, the church of Jesus Christ. No wonder the poet could say, view the vast building, see it rise, the work how great, the plan how wise, nor can that faith be overthrown that rests upon the living stone. Now Paul gives us at the end of this chapter three more illustrations about three elements upon which the church of Jesus Christ is founded and is resting upon. Look at the verses 20 to 22. He talks first of all about the foundation. Secondly, he talks about the cornerstone. And then thirdly, the part of the building which is the building blocks. We who put the building together. Now let's look at the first the foundation that we find in verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now look at the order of that sentence. The apostles first. The prophets second. Now that makes it quite obvious that the prophets that are being talked about in this verse are New Testament prophets. Otherwise, it would say the prophets and the apostles, inferring that it was the Old Testament of prophets that came before the New Testament apostles. But no, he says the apostles and then the prophets inferring and telling us that the prophets he is talking about are the prophets that you find in the book of Acts. The prophets that preached the word of God, the prophets who God spoke through before they had a written canon of the word of God in Scripture. It doesn't mean here that these apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, David, that's what it says. Look at the verse. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, turn with me for a moment very quickly to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. <coughs> Now listen very carefully. We must interpret the word of God by the word of God. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. What does Paul say? For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But this verse says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. But what Paul is saying here is not literally that the apostles, the literal twelve apostles and the prophets of the New Testament were the foundation. But he is alluding and inferring that what came out of the apostles' mouths, or as the New Testament t teaches, the apostles' doctrine. And the prophets preaching and teaching. In other words, the word of the living God is the foundation on which we build. The teaching about the person and the work, the deity, the humanity, the effectual death and atoning blood of Christ. That is the foundation. In other words, he's saying the same thing. He says in Corinthians that Christ is the only foundation. No man can lay another foundation. And he's saying in Ephesians the teaching of who Christ is. The person, the, the, the attributes, the effectual work and the, the atonement that is efficacious. That is all that we rest upon. Isn't it? Now you see what he's saying. But then he goes on and he says... 
There is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now there's the second illustration. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now for hundreds of years in the ancient world, if you were reading that, you would know right away what it meant. Because the cornerstone was a description that had a prophetic meaning. For the Jew, the cornerstone meant the Messiah. Turn to Isaiah 28 for a moment. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. And I want you to keep your finger in this verse. And God is speaking here through Isaiah and he says, Therefore... Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone. Now look at this phrase. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Now most scholars, as they look at that verse and they look at Ephesians, would see in, in the description, the chief cornerstone, a prophetic description of the Messiah of Israel, the Christ of God. And if you were to use that description in those days and talk about a cornerstone, you would be talking about the foundation of a building which would bring stability to the whole form. Do you understand? So immediately, when you said cornerstone to a Jew, he thought about stability. Say cornerstone, he thought about the structure, how it was solid, how it was grounded, how it could not be moved. Indeed, we're told that the, in the Jerusalem temple, the foundation stones, the greatest of the foundation stones was 29 feet in length. That's basically the size of a train carriage. And this great cornerstone was planted somewhere in the building. And the whole building was fitted and framed around it. And that stone brought stability to it all. Now the scholars debate over what the cornerstone really was in practical terms. There are three interpretations. And each one, no matter what one you take, speaks of Christ. There is the foundation stone, the cornerstone, the stone that we would imagine you set in the middle of the foundations and the whole building is fitted and framed there. And we can see in that picture, a picture of our blessed Lord, that he is the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And like the wise man and the foolish man, unless we know that we are built upon the rock, we will sink. And if the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, whether it be the literal person of, of Jesus Christ, or the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, be corroded or start to be chipped away at by liberal scholars, what will happen is the building begins to topple and eventually will crumble. The second interpretation is that of an arch in a doorway. You know, a stone arch. And some scholars think that the capstone was that stone that was in the middle of the top of the arch that held it all together and ultimately figuratively held the whole building as far as you could see with the naked eye. It spoke of preeminent. Isn't he the preeminent one? Isn't he the name that is above every name? 
Isn't he the only name in the church that should be exalted and praised and worshipped and adored and magnified and served? And then there is the idea of another capstone, which if you've been to Egypt and you see the pyramids, you'll notice that at most of the top of the pyramids, the, the bricks are actually chipped away around the, the peak. And that is because that whole structure of a pyramid, 3D triangle, was there and was covered probably in lime. And at the top there was a capstone, possibly coated in gold. A capstone at the very top! Now I happen to believe that the cornerstone here is what we would understand in the foundations. But no matter what it is, all of it speaks of Christ. And what Paul is getting across here is the whole architectural unity, symmetry and structure of this building of the church that is built upon Christ must be determined by the foundation stone. That means the lean of the building. The structure of the walls, the shape of the roof, the layers of the walls, the dimensions of the whole structure were as a result of where the chief cornerstone was and what a good cornerstone it happened to be. And all the other stones had to adjust to the shape of the chief cornerstone. Look at Isaiah again, 28, 16. And that phrase that I wanted you to note a tried stone. F.F. F. Bruce, the biblical scholar, believes that that can be translated a tested stone. In other words, a stone of testing, a stone that measures how good a building it really is. And the way to measure the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who should set our standard. He is the example that we ought to follow. It is his teaching. It is his walk. It is his word. It is his gospel. It is his philosophy of life. It is his worldview that we as believers ought to adopt. He ought to set the train in his own church because he is the cornerstone, the stone of testing. Now, what shape are we in? Do we measure up? Do we fall into line? In verse 21 and 22, as we know from the Old Testament, just as in the wilderness the Jews had the tent of God, the tabernacle, and do you remember that God's presence came and filled the tabernacle? You remember we were thinking about it around the Lord's table yesterday morning. That when the temple of Solomon was built, no one could do anything the priest couldn't even serve. Why? Because the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, came down and he filled the whole temple. Chapter 1 in the last verse describes the Lord Jesus Christ to be the head of the church, the gift of God given to the church. And he's described as this, the one who fills all in all. You see the picture? In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We are God's habitation. 
Well, let's grasp this. We, as we sit together, are, are, are the building, the place, the location upon the map where God lives. No longer does he sit or hover upon the mercies. No longer is he through the veil in the temple. No longer. He is in your heart. And he's in mine. The soul wherein God dwells. What church could holier be? Becomes a walking tent of heavenly majesty. So Paul goes on. And he goes into more detail. And in chapter 3, in verses 1 to 13, he begins to expound the mystery again. And this book of Ephesians has been well called by some the mystery of the church of Jesus Christ. It speaks primarily about this great thing, this new thing that God has done. And the first thing he says in verses 1 to 13 on your sheet is this. Of the revelation of the mystery, he says, first of all, what the mystery was made known to him individually, Paul. What God had showed him, verses 1 to 6. And what he has described in chapter 2 and before it, in chapter 1, he describes as the mystery he begins to explain. Now, we're not talking about Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes or Inspector Poirot. That is the understanding that we have of mystery today in our English language. But the word of God was written in Greek. The New Testament at least. And some of you ought to realize that, that it wasn't written in English. Nor was it written in Jacobean English. It was written in Greek. And the word mystery in Greek is mysterion. And it simply means something, and we've learned this before, that is beyond natural knowledge. Something that man has not had revealed to him, and something that is now in the New Testament being opened to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit of the living God. In Colossians 1 and verse 26, we read this. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to the saints. You got it? This is a truth that has never been known before. It's a secret that is now being made open. It is the open secret of God. You've heard of Napoleon Bonaparte, haven't you? He's famous for being a wannabe conqueror of Europe. That is his claim to fame. But in July 1798, he began to occupy Egypt, and in the next three years, just before he was ousted and pushed out of Egypt, his other passion made him conquer. His other passion was archaeology. And one of his French comrades, a countryman, found what is called the Rosetta Stone. You've maybe heard about it. And from the Rosetta Stone, they were able to look at an alphabet, the Egyptian alphabet, hieroglyphics. And it gave them the key to understanding what each letter in the hieroglyphic alphabet meant and correlated to in the English language and indeed any other Latin language. 
And that stone became the key to understanding not simply a language, but a whole Egyptian world and empire that had been closed to humanity before. And the door was being opened for modern Egyptian studies. You get what I'm saying? This is like Paul. A mystery is being revealed to him now that, that was secret for all time. It had never been opened. It was there, yes, and it was there in the mind of God. It was there in his eternal counsels. He was well determined and prepared to put it into action when the fullness of time was come. But he had not revealed to men what it was. And Paul the Apostle is coming and he stumbles in the intellect of God revealed to him of God's great poem, God's masterpiece, God's new work, God's new man, God's new creation the church of Jesus Christ and all of a sudden when we stumble upon it in the New Testament we find that it makes sense of the Old Testament we find it makes sense of what the Lord Jesus was talking about and alluding to within the four gospels we find that it makes sense about what the apostles were saying and doing and the foundation that they were laying in the acts of the apostles we find that it examines and amplifies everything that we have in all of the epistles. It is the key to understanding the word of God. It is the mystery of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. We'll not read it, but look at it. He is alluding to that mystery there. He alludes to it in verse 15 of chapter 2. He's alluded to it already in the verses we've looked at in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And now in chapter 3, it is dominating his thoughts and his feelings, his intellect and his will. And he wants these Ephesian Christians to realize that he is fully informed about the matter from God. And so he begins in verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and then he stops. Now I want you to see this because he doesn't continue his train of thought until verse 14. He's starting to pray, if you like. He says, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, verse 14. And then he says, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's as if he begins to talk in this way about how he is suffering for them. And then in parenthesis, he stops. And tells them a little bit about why he is suffering. And then verse 14 he begins to start praying for them again. Now look at these verses with me. Because Paul begins to reveal the great secret of God. Never revealed in all eternity. But only in this wonderful dispensation. This age and economy and distribution and ministration of God. Has it ever been revealed or will be revealed? It seems from the New Testament that Paul was especially chosen of God to reveal this to the Gentile. He was the one that was chosen. That's why he's so often called the apostle of the mystery. But that doesn't mean that he was the only one that had this revealed to him. For if you look at verse 5, which in all our ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy plural apostles and plural prophets by the Spirit of the living God. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed it to his own disciples when he was upon the earth. 
Turn with me to John chapter 10. <coughs> John chapter 10. And first of all, verse 4. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, Jesus says he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, they am also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. It's clear, isn't it? You see, you couldn't be a Jew. Or you couldn't be saved, technically, if you weren't a Jew. You couldn't be of the household of God. You were a foreigner to the commonwealth of Israel and all the blessings and all of the promises. But even here to the, the disciples, to the twelve, God in flesh is revealing the plan of God and the counsel of the divine trinity in heaven of all time that he wants people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every background to be in the church of God's building. Isn't it wonderful? He revealed it to the apostles and to the prophets. And you remember that Peter had that vision in the Acts of the Apostles, that sheet let down from heaven displaying the wonderful mystery that all nations would come to Christ and come to God in Christ. In fact, the revelation of the body even seems to be, have been given Paul at the very moment of his conversion. What do I mean? What happened when he saw that light on the road to Damascus and he fell before it? And the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Why did he say that? Because if you hurt the head, you hurt the whole body. And although this mystery of the church of Jesus Christ, the new man, the third race, if you would like to call it, of a unity between Jews and Gentiles was revealed to all the twelve apostles and the prophets of the New Testament, it seems that Paul alone had revealed to him this picture of a body that we find outlined more in the book of Corinthians. He says in verse 1 that he was a prisoner. Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentile. Now in verse 1 he calls himself a prisoner. And verse 7, look at it, he calls it, the AV says, a minister, but a better translated, a servant, because a minister is not someone that wears fancy garments or is a pastor or anything like that. That word in the New Testament simply means a servant, a servant of God. So verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner. And verse 7, he calls himself a servant. Now listen to verse 1 in the Amplified New Testament. Listen. For this reason, because I preach that you are thus builded together, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake and on behalf of you Gentiles. You get what he's saying? The reason why I am here in prison is because I have been preaching in the streets and in the synagogues and all around the countryside this mystery that the Jew and the Gentile can be united together in Christ. Listen to another paraphrase of 
I am here in prison for the preaching that you Gentiles are part of God's house. Now think about it. This is the earthly leader of Jewish orthodoxy teaching that the Jew and the Gentile can be united together in Christ. This is the one who was rounding up people to be killed when Christ appeared to. This is the one who stood holding the coat of the one who was stoning Stephen. And he is in prison for preaching the same message. You see, that's what Christ can do in your life. And only the Holy Ghost can do that. And my friend, look at this, please, for this is absolutely tremendous because Paul here, we see, has a theology of suffering. See, there's a whole lot of, I better watch what I say, but drivel taught from pulpit. That if you're walking with God, you will know health and you will know wealth and you will know the sun shining upon your footsteps everywhere you go. But Paul is in prison here. Was he disobedient? Was he living in sin? Had he a problem with his mind? Or was there something going wrong in his heart? A motive? Or was there pride? Or was there something that was stopping God letting him out of prison? Paul had a theology of suffering. And here's how I know it. He says not, I am a prisoner of Rome. Because he was. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of these bars or this house that I am under house arrest within. Listen, look at it. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe this. That Jesus Christ had him in prison. I believe that. I believe this was in the purposes of God. I believe it. And I'll tell you why you believe it. Because God ordains these things for his children. Because there is a theology of suffering. And he counted it all joy, it says, to be reckoned in God's will and to be suffering with him. And if you want to know more about that, you can go to the book of Revelation. And you find tribulation saints who are being butchered and murdered by the spirit of Antichrist. And you see in heaven them coming to God and saying, When are you going to avenge our blood? What does he say? The number's not up yet. There's still more to die. That means he had a number. And that means there were those who were ordained to martyrdom. And Paul is here. In the depths and in the bowels of a prison. And he is resigned to the fact that Jesus Christ has him where he is for a purpose. And how could he not? We are standing here this evening with the epistle to the Ephesians in our hands. Was that not in God's will? That he should be in prison to write a book such as this? Of course it is. What strikes me is this. If Paul had have toned it down a little and succumbed a little to the Jewish nationalism of the day, he could have got out. I suspect that if a Christian was locked up today for their witness, we'd all be running and saying, look, tone it down. Lie low for a couple of weeks and just hope that you'll get out. Did he? No. Because he wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't looking at the Roman establishment and saying, they've got me. Christ has got me. And Christ can have me. For I am sold to the gospel. 
I have died to him, and if death it may be, then let it come. You remember how in the defense of the gospel he stood at the temple in the book of Acts? And there are no stairs in Jerusalem. What happened was the whole crowd and rabble came round him and he was announcing that God the Lord had commanded him to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel that the Jew and the Gentile could be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And it says that they boiled up in ire and in anger. The Jewish hearers and they stirred and said this Away with such a fellow from the earth it is not fit for him to live. And that gospel has him where he is now. I wonder, do you ever think how much you owe to the Apostle Paul? For if he hadn't have done it, I doubt if anyone would have done it. He was God's instrument to getting you the gospel here in the 21st century in Northern Ireland. Know how we should be thankful to him, but not primarily to him, but for the Holy Ghost that arrested him there on the road to Damascus. To the one who says within his word, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name to the Gentiles. Hallelujah. What a God we have. That way back there in the road to Damascus, he was thinking of me. Over here, 2,000 years away, he was thinking of me. We've got to go on. There's so many that we could be grateful to. There are martyrs. There are the reformers. There are the Puritans. There are modern day people who are trying to keep and teach the gospel and keep it pure of all nationalism, of all petty arguments, of all sorts of, of modern day Pharisees, Phariseeism that we find even in our own land at this time. And we are needing now today in our contemporary society to ask ourselves the question, are we faithful no matter the cost? Are we willing to keep the gospel pure? Are we willing to proclaim the gospel? No matter what the cost is to us, our families, our name and our livelihood. But this is the second thing. Because not only had he a theology of suffering, but he had a theology of grace. He said that he had grace to minister. Verse 2, if ye have heard of the dispensation or the administration of the grace of God which is given me to you. Word. In other words, I've been committed this thing to commit to you. I've been given this. I have become a steward of this gospel of grace. And he is inferring throughout the passage that he has actually been given grace from God to do this ministry. God has not saved them by grace and then said, now you push on there and get that job done and if you feel well, I'll raise up somebody else to do the job for me. He sends them out with the same grace that he saves them with to do the job that he had ordained for them. There is a theology of grace. And Paul sees himself in this passage as the manager of God's grace to the Gentiles. He was distributing, that's what the word dispensation means, an administration, a stewardship. He was sending out and handing out the economy of God. Now listen. That grace is still with us today. 
And the church of Jesus Christ is a body. And there is nowhere within the New Testament scriptures that teaches a one-man ministry or that the oversight or the elders carry the can for everybody and all the rest just turn up on a Sunday to listen to the sermon. Nowhere. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is the greatest waste of God's grace that I've ever heard of, isn't it? For the same grace that is given to me to be the pastor of the Iron Hall, to the oversight and the deacons, is given to you to be a member of the body because we're all the same. We're all the same. The jobs and the roles might be different, but we have the same God. We're in the same body, Christ. I can't do what you can do. You can't do what I can do. But we all have been given that administration, that dispensation of grace, the ability to go out and do what God has ordained for you and I to do. Oh, there's so much we could go into here. For God had chosen the Jews, hadn't he? From Genesis 12, when he spoke to Abraham and made him a Jew. He was a Gentile before, but he made him a Jew. And then through, right through to Malachi chapter 4. At the end of the Old Testament, what God did through the Jews, how he worked with them, how he talked to them, how he tried to redeem them and deliver them from every ill that they brought themselves into. And then at the end, they rejected their own Messiah. And as a result, God temporarily has set them aside. And today, God deals with everybody. It's an administration of all the nations. It's a dispensation of grace whereby, and look at what Paul is saying, verse 6, whereby every Gentile that trusts in Christ can be a fellow heir with the Jew, can be of the same body as the Jew, can be a partaker of the promises of Christ, the Messiah, by the gospel. You can be, we can be, heirs together, members together. And that word in the Greek, members together, is, is a word that Paul just makes up out of his head. Because there is nothing to describe the truth that he is saying. The mystery, it's never been heard of, so there's not even a word to describe it. The Gentiles and Jews can be united together on the same footing as one another. And we can be fellow partakers in God. Let's look at our second point. For we have not just the mystery made known to Paul. But there's the mystery made known to the world and that ought to be known to the world in verses 7 to 13. And Paul again, like I've just said, bends the language and makes up his own word to describe in the Greek how he feels before God. Whereof I was made a minister as a servant according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now that in the original language is a hybrid word. It's, it's an odd word. Because he takes the Greek word least or smaller. And he adds an ending onto it that is impossible linguistically. So that he creates a word something like leaster. I am the leaster of all the apostles. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul's word in Latin, Paulus, his name in Latin, means small. 
So it's as if he's making a play on words here. And in effect what he's saying, listen to this. I am little by name, little probably in stature, and morally and spiritually littler than all the least of the Christians. I'm the leaster. Small Paul. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, this is the chief, perhaps, the preeminent theologian of the church of Jesus Christ and of all time. And he says, I'm the leaster of all Christians. That's some lesson, isn't it? For whenever we think we're getting somewhere, we're, we're big men, aren't we? And we've got a bit of truth under our arm and a few notes in our Bible. And we've got some theology all worked out and everybody else is wrong and I'm right. And Paul, the greatest of all, is the leaster. You see, that had to be his disposition in order that the dispensation could go forth. If he hadn't that disposition, he could never be trusted. And indeed, the grace that is talked about in verse 8, the reason why he was given that grace in a sense is because he needed it. He recognized that he was the leaster of the apostles. Now I'm indebted to one of the brethren here for this information. Look at the scriptures. 1 Corinthians, you don't need to look at it now, but when you get home, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. A.D. 59, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. A.D. 64, Paul says, Ephesians 3, 8, what we read here, Who am the less than the least of all the saints? A.D. 65, Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.15, he was the chief of sinners. See the digression going down the least of the apostles. Then who am the less than the least of all the saints? Then who is the chief of sinners? And this tells me that this, that the closer he got to God and to Christ, the more he saw his sin. Don't tell me that he had any sinless perfection. Because I'll not buy it. It's not here. In fact, the exact opposite is here. The more he saw of Christ and his awesome laser light of holiness, the more he fell in the dust. And as John, if we could learn it, he had to increase. He had to. And John had to decrease. But then, we see here the message of the mystery on your sheet then. This tells us that Paul had a theology of revelation. The revelation that he had was a message of the mystery. And this is unfolding before us this evening. And we can only deal with, with maybe one of them. The first thing was in the mystery was that Paul was given the dispensation to preach Christ to the Gentiles. Look at it, verse 8. The second part, preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The great Toscanini once gave a concert. And the audience were so impressed and gave such an enthusiastic response that they gave him several encores. And after a while there was a silence after the commotion. And Toscanini turned his back upon the audience and turned to the orchestra. And this is what he said. I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven. He is everything. 
we are only carrying out the composition of God Almighty. Isn't that right? We are his poem. We are his masterpiece. We are the players on his stage. We are carrying out what he has determined through the grace of God that has been revealed to us by the revelation of Jesus Christ who is the express image, the stamp of God who died for our sins. We have trusted in his blood and God has engaged us into the greatest council of all the universe. A church of Jesus Christ, spotless, washed in his blood, pure and doing the will of God. But the point is this that if we preach anything but Christ, we're liars. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ. Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God. So he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I finish with this. It literally could be translated this. Riches that cannot be traced. Inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite. And what he's talking about is all the saving riches of God, the sanctifying riches of Christ. The relational riches that we have with him from day to day as we carry on a relationship. The practical riches that we face day by day when we face the trials and the stumbling blocks and the pits that the enemy would set in front of us. But he practically comes with his riches and praise God, they are eternal riches. And they can never ever be exhausted. We have much more to do. But let me ask you this. We all have value systems, don't we? What we consider as important as in priceless, sentimental value. Where does Christ come in that list? For to Paul, and as far as he was concerned, to the church at large, Christ ought to be unsearchable riches. He ought to come first. Our Father, we thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, not of this physical building, but of every person in this place who has trusted Christ in his blood. They are firm on the rock, Christ Jesus. But Lord, the consequences are that we ought to fall into line. And this building, and I'm talking, Lord, you know about the people, have to reflect the stature, the measurements, the whole person of the one on whom they rest. We need, like Paul, to have grace to do that, Lord. So we ask, Lord, give us the grace that will be sufficient for our need. Bless us now as we part. In that lovely, unsearchable name of Jesus Christ. Amen.